Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny. My co-host, Delilah Jones, and I are joined by... Cheryl Pearson Cuccio, her husband Rob, and author Morgan St. James, Incest, Murder, and a Miracle. The story tells what really happened to Cheryl and Rob before, during, and after Cheryl Pearson, a 16-year-old sexually, physically, and mentally abused teen, paid a classmate $1,000 to kill her father in 1986. As a traumatized teenager, Cheryl only gave one short media interview 30 years ago. However, the murder drew extensive local and national media attention. Some accounts implied that she lied about the abuse, others that she did it for her father's insurance, but Cheryl remained silent for years, too young and destroyed to fight back or discuss the true dark nature of the nightmare she lived. After her release from jail, she and her high school boyfriend, Rob Cuccio, were married. They had two daughters and led as normal a life as possible. Most friends and neighbors had no idea of her past. Cheryl and Rob's gripping story has an additional element, a miracle. On Cheryl's 43rd birthday, May 14, 2012, after months of misdiagnosed chest pain and other symptoms, Rob, her husband of 25 years, suffered a fatal heart attack. Doctors pronounced him dead, and after 30 minutes, but he'd saved Cheryl's life so many times, even when she wanted to commit suicide, she knew she had to do whatever she could to save him and couldn't live without him. She refused to accept that he was dead because something inside told her he was clinging to a remnant of life. She begged doctors to keep trying and wouldn't give up. The doctor finally said, we'll try for 10 minutes more, but after that, you'll have to let him go. Then she prayed to everyone she could think of, even to the father she paid to have killed. With only two minutes of the 10 minutes left, 43 minutes after his heart ceased to beat and supply oxygen to his brain, there was a faint pulse and Rob came back to life. The doctors never had a case where the patient was dead for so long and did not sustain massive brain damage. It was indeed a miracle. Cheryl, Rob, and Morgan, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Denny. Thank you, Denny. Uh, Good to be back uh, on with you again. Yes, it's been a while, Morgan. Welcome back. 
Uh, Thank you. Cheryl, Cheryl, I'd like to begin with you telling uh, our listeners what your home life was like prior to the incident in 1986. What was your family makeup, and how did your father treat the others? Okay. Um, I was a teenager um, back then who um, had to cook and clean and take care of my family because um, – at that point in my life, my um, my mother was um, very um, sick. She had a very rare um, disease that affected her kidneys, and she wasn't home. So I had a um, you know a mom and a dad, and like I said, my mom was sick. I had an older brother who was three years older than me, and I had a younger sister who was eight years younger than me. Um, so I was a middle child, and. Um, like I said, I you know I I did all the the um, duties that um, a housewife and a mom would do um, when my mom was sick. She was in the hospital um, away from the home most of uh, um, the time from when I was ten years old on. And um, my father was described as uh, very vulgar, more as a bully. Um, people were afraid of him. Um, he uh, was my brother's little league uh, coach, and uh, just to get an idea, um, he was thrown off uh, out of the little league, um, you know, out of the little league um, as being the coach just for cursing out um, his own players on his own team. He was thrown out of the league. So, you know, that kind of just gives you a little bit of an insight of, what, what type of man he was. Now, was he physically abusive to uh, to your brother or sister or your mom? Um, you know, to my brother, he was very much so, um, very physically and, men- you know, mentally and verbally abusive to my brother. My brother um, stopped playing sports altogether, um, uh, would uh, very much be uh, physically abusive to my brother to the point where uh, my brother would pass out um, from my from my father physically hitting him uh, often. Um, my mother, you know, to be honest with you, I don't remember my 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 father physically um, hitting my mother, but he was uh, verbally abusive to her. And uh, my little sister, not so much. Um, never, you know, she was uh, very little um, when my mother first got sick, so she wasn't really, um, you know, when she was an infant, she was uh, basic. My father wasn't around too much. He went to work and then spent a lot of um, time, you know, either at the hospital or my sister was, you know, at um, at our neighbor's house in the evening and stuff like that. So she was. He, she doesn't really. Uh, he didn't really spend too much time with her, as far as, uh, you know, physically abusing her. But um, didn't didn't hit her. You know, I, I was pretty much protecting her at that point. So. Uh, but just basically, the only ones that really suffered the abuse of, as far as physically and mentally and verbally abusive was me and my brother, and then unfortunately the sexual abuse was just myself. Now, the sexual abuse, do you remember about how old you were when that began? Um, the fondling started uh, when I was 10 years old. 10, so... Right, when, uh, my, when my mother uh, became sick and left the house to go into the hospital. That's when it started. 
So this went on for several years then, right? Uh, it was six years. Six years. Uh, yes. Did uh, was your father ever turned into um, uh, any an agency, a government agency, you know, child protective type thing? And did anybody uh, outside the family know what was going on and uh, and make a complaint or or no? Um, no, I'm afraid not. Um, you know, it was. You know, I never realized um, until I was at my hearing that people um, even suspected anything. Uh, there was uh, approximately 20 people that testified that they had thought something was going on, but then as adults were too afraid to uh, come forward themselves. They were afraid of him and uh, what what <clears throat> might happen if um, they confronted him themselves. So me as a child... Um, people have said, why didn't I come forward? But yet uh, 20 grown adults who did not live with him uh, didn't go f- go forward and um, go the right avenues. And yet people as, you know, as me as a child living in the environment expected me who, uh, you know, was threatened on a, on a daily basis and um, was brainwashed that nobody would believe me was... Uh, at that point was supposed to have gone forward and and tell somebody and you know something like that as far as incest you're you're you're, you're taught to you know um you know have a mindset that you know I didn't trust anybody here somebody that I was supposed to have trust and and you know is your father and you're supposed to trust your parents and you know, my mother wasn't in the house, and I, and I, I was supposed to have trust my father, and he was breaking my trust by doing this. So how was I supposed to trust somebody else to help me? And here this person was violating my trust and threatening to kill me if I told and brainwashing me that nobody would believe me anyways and that he was doing this incest relationship because he loves me. Um, yeah, that's, that is a big reason why I, I did not go to anybody and tell and then I had adults reported that they thought something was going on but they they didn't go forward themselves so you know that's the Um, whole big thing about incest it's it's a dirty secret yes and it's uh like you say there was 20 some adults that suspected yet they didn't do anything It, it, uh, it seems like in a lot of these types of cases it's always easier to blame the victim Yes, everybody, you know, until you walk in someone's shoes and you just don't, you you just don't know, you know, it's just, you just don't know how you would react in the circumstances until, until you're in that, you know, spot. Now, Cheryl, so this is going on, we're in in 1986 now, Uh, Mm -hmm. this has been going on for six years, the the sexual piece of it, Uh, did something happen or was there any particular incident or event or concern that you had that convinced you it was time to do something, that something had to, had to be done? Well, you know what, Denny, there was, there was a couple of different things, to be honest with you. You know, like I said before, first, you know, I was, I was, you know, brainwashed that, that, you know, nobody would believe me. And then second, you know, he was threatening me, you know, constantly that, that if I did tell that, you know, he would, he would kill me, and I believed him. You know, he was a very scary man. He was, you know, you know, a large man, you know, six foot, you know, two, three hundred pounds, 
and uh, I was I was scared, you know, beat me on a regular basis, and then and then um, you know he started showing signs, you know, um, same signs that you know he started sh- just showing the same signs of how you know the inc- the incest relationship started with me, started showing the same signs um, on my sister, and then you know you know with his smirks. You know, with a smirk, saying, you know, this is this is what I'm going to be doing to your sister if, you know, if you, if you keep leaving the house. So that that was on my mind constantly. I, you know, I, I needed to protect her. And then, and then I felt like, you know, that um, I was disappointing my mother. I felt like she was watching from heaven, and and uh, you know, that um, uh, I was disappointing her by allowing my father, you know, to, to rape me several times a day. That was weighing heavy on my mind. You know, from she was she was gone for a year and. And while she was in heaven, that that's what she was doing. She, you know, was watching watching over. And, you know, at the funeral, that's all everybody kept saying was, oh, your mother will protect you and watch you from heaven. And that's what I thought she was watching. And then, and then finally, like the last straw was that, you know, Rob realized what was going on, you know, in my house between me and my father. And then I had that pressure of, of him. Somebody finally, finally knew what was going on because he spent so much time you know, in, in my house, and he finally realized what was going on, and then that one night that I was sitting at my house, you know, listening to the news, and I heard that the Beverly Wallace case um, came on the news, and I heard the story that she had hired somebody to, you know, kill her abusive, you know, husband, and then that weighed on my mind, and after all those things, you know, are on my mind between, you know, protecting my sister and my mother watching from heaven, and then, you know, Rob, Rob, knowing about the abuse that somebody knew, and I didn't want him to think that you know I was allowing it to happen either, and just every all the pressure and all the, you know, everything on my head, I just I just needed it to stop, and I just ha- I felt like there was no way out. Uh, Cheryl, before we bring Rob in, I, I got uh, one more question uh, I'd like you to answer. Uh, you now come to the conclusion that your father's death is really the only way to end this situation you and your sister and brother are find yourselves in um how how did it come about with this classmate did you just ask him if he or uh, please explain how this you got talking with him about it and how you reached the uh the accommodation that he would do the job Okay, so like I said, I heard that Beverly Wallace on the news, and uh, it was weighing heavily on my uh, on my mind that night. And so when I went into homeroom, you know, the next day, uh, it was uh, the 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 kid in front of me. His name was Sean Peeker, and his last name is P I C. And I sat behind him, and my last name was P I E. And so you know, I just started up a conversation with him, and. I just said, um, you know, hey, did did you hear about the Beverly Wallace case on the news last night? And he turned around and said no. And I continued to tell him about the story about it was this lady from Mastic, which is, you know, in the area by by where we live. And I said, you know, she hired someone to kill her husband because, you know, she was being abused. And he said he didn't hear about it. And um, I said, yeah, well, who would be crazy enough, you know, to kill someone for money? And he, you know, he's like, I would if the money was right. And I just took a minute, and I'm like, well, how much would you do it for? And he said, $1,000. And then I just waited for a minute, and I was thinking to myself, $1,000? That's all you would do it for? And I was like, I was like, wow. 
I'm like, um, you know, thinking to myself, that's, you know, that's all. That doesn't, that's not a lot of money. And then I was like, you know, you would do it for a thousand dollars. And he's like, yep. And I'm like, I whispered to him, you know, would you do it for me? And he's like, yeah. And that's how the whole thing got started. And so from, from there, you know, he said he would do it and, you know, um, you know, I told Rob, you know, a couple of days later when I when I spoke to Rob cuz you know, back in the day we didn't we didn't have cell phones or whatever and I had to wait until I saw him and you know, um I I thought Rob, you know, I thought I would tell Rob like I had a good plan now because you know, Rob was so so upset and worked up that you know that he knew what was going on and I thought I had figured it out and had a good plan and and that's how that's how it got started and uh that's how it all 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 began, you know, began. So um I never really really thought about the consequences. I just thought about it ending and that I was protecting my sister and that it seemed like a good plan at the time and never really thought it through and yeah, that's what happened. Uh, Cheryl, how from the time you first talked to your classmate until he actually uh, killed your father, about how much time elapsed was it a a week or two, or was it longer than that? Oh, it was uh, three months. Three months. And did you ever have second thoughts during that period? Did you ever get cold feet, so to speak, and, and, um, and think well, about canceling? Um, he 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 uh, he tried uh, he tried to uh, do it like a month later, um, and it was a failed attempt because. I believe he was going to we had a house across the street that uh my father rented out and I I believe he he set the alarm off and he was I think the failed attempt he was going to try to stab my father or something like that and uh when it was a failed attempt um uh, Rob found out that he was going to try to stab my father and I remember Rob flipping out saying you cuz Sean was a very small person and Rob was like, you are going to stab somebody that's triple your size. Are you out of your mind? He's like, forget it. Forget it. We'll figure something out. Don't do not do it. You know, and basically told him, never mind. And we left it at that and never talked about it again. And two months went by and never, you know, never talked about it, never expected him to do it and left it at that. We were going to try to figure something out or just, I don't, you know, it was like a, you know, a dead plan or, and didn't realize that he did it, you know. And then the day my father was killed, I thought my father had fallen and slipped on the ice. That's what I was told and never thought that Sean had did it until the cops started questioning me and never realized that he was shot until they told me he was shot and then I realized that, that Sean had did it, so... Uh, yeah, never, so, never, never realized he had even shot him until later on that day. So you were actually surprised when it when it actually took place. I I definitely was surprised because I yeah I didn't realize that he actually did it. Uh, Rob, uh, you were uh, uh, dating Cheryl uh, prior to her father's death. You apparently you know had been to the house and so forth. Um, you uh, you at some point kind of caught on to what was happening. Uh, have I got that right? Yes, absolutely. That is correct. And 
what uh, what was your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts uh, about the best way for Cheryl to get out of this mess uh, that she was in, or did she discuss with you her idea about the classmate and all that, or how did that work out? Yes. Well, you know, during the year leading up to her father's death, I had uh, gotten to know Cheryl and her family quite well. Because I spent almost every night at her house because uh, she wasn't allowed to go out. Um, and the few occasions that we did go out, I found out later that when Cheryl came home, she found her sister in a compromising situation with her father, and that also made Cheryl not want to go out. So if I wanted to spend time with Cheryl, I needed to spend time with her at her house. And while I was there, um, well, in the beginning, me and her father got along quite well. Um, her, Her brother, Jimmy, who was a year older than me, had moved out of the house, and um, that left Cheryl to not only do the household chores, but also to do some of the manly chores of washing the car and mowing the lawn. And I started to come by and do them for her. We, I would mow her lawn for her, and you know, if she needed to wash the father's car, I would wash it for her. And I actually think that her father respected me for that. Because, of course, I didn't ask for any money or didn't want anything. You know, I just wanted to help. So, um, in the beginning, we actually got along quite well. Uh, but the more I spent, the more time I spent there, and the more he showed me how possessive he was, I kind of got a feeling that something wasn't right. And um, I don't know how long it was after that that I uh, that me and Cheryl were having an argument, and it kind of just slipped out of my mouth that I know what your father's doing to you. And uh, she, when I brought it up to her, she got white as a ghost and said, you're wrong. I said, no, Cheryl, I'm not wrong. I said, I figured this out. I can see. I can see the way he looks at you, the way he touches you, the way he always wants you sitting on his lap when I'm around. As I could tell what's going on. And then finally she confided in me and said, you're right. However, you can't tell anybody because he'll kill me and start on my sister. So, you know, like we wrote in the book, suspecting it was one thing, but actually knowing it was a a, a complete different animal. Um, So at this point, I told her, let's get in the car and go. I'm 17, you're 16. I got a good car. Uh, I got some money. Let's just leave, you know, and she wouldn't leave her sister. I said, well, I I can't take an eight-year-old girl with me. I said, so uh, I'm telling you that I would rather just put you in the car and go. Um, Excuse me. So that plan wasn't going to work because of her little sister. So then she told me about this, this, plan that she had that she was going to have a, a 16-year-old classmate kill her father, and, and I told her she was off a rocker. I said, Shaq, come on. Um, and I believe that I, I, I think I must have convinced her that, she, that it wasn't going to happen. And then came that fateful day in February where I got the phone call that her father was dead. And uh, later on that day when I found out that the kid actually went through with the plan, 
um, I knew we were in a whole lot of trouble. Um, I, I really, like I said, uh, you know, I had hoped we would get away with it, but you're talking about 16-year-old kids, and um, I just, I guess I, I knew we were in a lot of trouble. How the, the um, as the police investigated this when they realized they had had a, a murder on their hands, um, did they bring you in for questioning? I know they obviously questioned Cheryl. Yes. Uh, they talked to you as well. They brought me in before Cheryl, and what happened was they brought me to headquarters and they marched me past Cheryl's brother to show me that they already had him in headquarters. And we, me and Jimmy both made eye contact with the, with each other. That's Cheryl's brother. And then they put me into another room and, and started to interrogate me. Uh, I'd say it was probably about, I don't know, a half hour of them doing their, uh, their brow beating where they told me I was the shooter. And I said, no, you got it wrong. I ain't the shooter. And, you know, they, again, began to get loud and get in my face. And um, they said, well, prove to me that you didn't do it. Because I paid the guy who did it. And they sat down and I said, well, wait a second. You have to understand the reason why. This man was raping and beating his daughter on a daily basis. It wasn't because we didn't like him or we wanted his money. He was raping his daughter. So at that point, they, I guess, knew they had the case solved, and they asked me if I would do them a favor and go and pick up Cheryl with them. And they said it would be easier on Cheryl if if she saw me. So they put me in the back of the car, and they didn't handcuff me or anything. I still wasn't handcuffed at this point. And they drove me to Cheryl's house, and they woke Cheryl up. It was probably sometime after midnight. And they asked Cheryl if if she had something she wanted to say. And Cheryl um, still denied that she had anything to do with it until I said, Cheryl, they know everything. And then she gave me a look. And uh, I knew she was mad because she had asked me not to tell anybody. However, you know, it's the old thing. The, the 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 truth will set you free, but first it's going to make you miserable. And <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, and in the car, you know, going there, going to headquarters before they split us up again, I could feel that she was mad that I told her secret, but it needed to come out. So, uh, uh, so she didn't tell the police. She didn't. Cheryl didn't tell anybody about the abuse. If anything, I was the one that told. Her and then I was the one that told the police. It wasn't Cheryl that told. Okay, I'm gonna. I don't want to give away too much more of your story at this point, uh, and I do want to move on, uh, Rob, to the uh, to the miracle. Uh, mm. Delilah, do you have any questions uh, about this portion of the story before we get into Rob's uh, heart attack? No, I. I just wanted, I guess you did say you were about 16, 17 years old, and this had been going on for six to eight years or something like that. Um, you know, I just I, I just can't fathom the pressure that you were under, not only with everything you had to handle in your family, um, 
but with the incest as well. It's just uh, it's incredible amount of pressure, and I don't think a lot of people out there totally get it. They totally, you know, a lot of times don't understand what is not only happening to a person physically, but also mentally. And Well, thank you. I mean, thank you very much, because people, like, would see me in school and, like, I hear from people now that I went to school with, and a lot of them will say, oh, you know, they don't believe me because you seem so normal in school, but they don't understand that school was my only outlet, and that was where I could be a normal kid. And you learn to, like, turn, like, you learn to, you know, live a lie and, like, be different people because you don't have a choice, and you learn you're living a lie so you could, like, push it all in and just try to just be pretend to be someone different because that's what gets you through each and every day. And so I would go to school and try to, you know, fit in and not let anybody know what's going on because if, if God forbid, I let my secret out and they took me out of the home, then it, I wouldn't be able to protect my sister. So it was very, a lot of pressure and, you know, I, I did what I had to do. And if I didn't get good grades, I would get beaten. So it was the pressure of getting good grades and keeping my secret and going home and still taking care of all of the house and my sister and my father's needs and being the uh, peacekeeper to make sure that I did everything he wanted me to do so that he didn't go and beat everybody else and... No one seems to understand, like you said, how much pressure and stress it was and then not be able to tell anybody, you know, uh, That's incredible. You know or talk I mean, about it. Right. So. It, it's, it really is. It's just incredible that um, what you've had to endure. You know, Cheryl, I was just thinking uh, as you were talking about the pressure and the stress and so on, that had it not been for your sister your, and your desire to protect her, uh, you could have very well ended up a suicide. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Denny, because I have a lot of people that I, you know, speak to on a daily basis, um, you know, that uh, reach out to me. And I had just been talking to somebody today about that. And, you know, and that's what she had said to me. And I said, you know what, um, if it wasn't for my sister, I definitely would have been a statistic. One, because... I wanted to be with my mother so bad. And, and I definitely would have done that to be with her. And But I couldn't leave my sister, so that was not an option. And, um, you know, so, and, and me and my sister have had our problems over that because I've always said to her that, you know, we'd get into our fights. And, you know, she in the very beginning when she came to live with me when she was 15, she would say, you ruined my life. And I said, oh, yeah. Well, you ruined my life because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had to go through as many years as I did because I would have just been a statistic, and I could have, you know, been killed myself, and it would have been over. I wouldn't have had to live through all that. And still, you know, now that as an adult, not only it didn't just end after I got out of jail, I've lived through all these years of pain. It just doesn't end because he's dead or because I got released from jail. It's been a lifetime of pain from from him and nightmares and trust issues and stuff like that. It just doesn't end because, you know, he's dead. 
that's what people doesn't seem to understand. And so it could have well, very well been a statistic if it wasn't for her. So, but you know, as, that was my main goal was to protect her, and I still protect her to this day. And she, I still, you know, now you know worry about her, and and I promised my mother, and I've always kept that promise, and I will continue to. And um, you know, uh, I've been reading up on um, um, incest, and you know, um, the statistics. The statistics for uh, you know incest with as far as uh, you know um, teen, teenage suicide is is very high. You know I don't I don't have the numbers in front of me off the top of my head, but I've been reading so many you know and it is very high, and it's you know it's 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 very scary. It's very scary, you know how many how many cases are reported just from that and a lot of. A lot of kids that commit teenage suicide or even adults that commit suicide will commit suicide and we don't even know how many commit because of it, it's ever happened to them because they even take that secret to the grave. Yeah, it's 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 really a very sad, tragic uh, circumstances that, that these young people, uh, kids, often find themselves in. Uh, Rob, let's uh, let's jump ahead to talk about your heart attack. Uh, prior to that happening, uh, did you consider yourself a religious man? Well, I was raised Catholic, and I was confirmed, baptized, communion, and confirmed. And I do believe in God. And I've been to church a couple of times, but I wouldn't consider myself a religious man by no stretch of the imagination. No. Okay, so you you believed, but you weren't, uh, let's say, a hundred percent into it. Uh, Correct. Like I, I like like we wrote in the book, I, I'm no holy roller, you know. Okay. Um, right. Yes, but I do. Yes, I do believe. I do. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, again, I refer to this as the miracle. Did uh, when that happened and you came out of it when you uh, were starting your recovery process. Did you realize what had happened? I mean, did it had it sunk in yet? How close you were to death, and actually had died? Yes, you know, um, you know. Again, you know. Now, now I do believe in the afterlife because I, I feel I've uh, I've actually seen or, or or been a part of it, um, and my relationship with God has changed. Uh, I still don't go to church on a regular basis, although I do think about it more. So I'm hoping that that counts for something because I would like to go, but, um, but I do talk to God more and, and I'm trying to, I guess, figure out why out of the millions of people who die, he let me come back. Um, and, you know, like I said, I do believe that, uh, that it's, to go forward with Cheryl and trying to help abuse people. Um, I do believe that that, that is the main reason why he decided to spare my life and let me continue going on without the brain damage and everything else that came with not breathing for almost an hour. Uh, yeah, I, I I didn't intend to ask this, but I can't help myself. Uh, during the time that you were out of it unconscious, uh, dead, if you will. Did you see or hear anything? You know, 
it's it's um it's odd because I do get that a lot and um you know the journey that I took you know I'll be honest with you Denny um it's weird because it comes to me and goes it, you know I do I I did that was absolutely gorgeous um and very serene and very um calm but i never crossed the threshold into where that place was i i i feel like i got i got right right to the threshold and and tried to go you know tried to take my step in there and and my angel or whoever it was that was that was with me on my journey stopped me from going any further and you know i do believe that if i had taken that that final step that i wouldn't be here today so um is it the truth is you know so many people have made up such stories about being dead that that i don't even bring it up too much in the book because um you know it's 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 what i i experienced and I don't read anybody else's stuff, and if someone's talking about it on TV, I change the channel because I, I don't want to hear what their experience was because I don't want it to skew mine. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty pretty unbelievable, I will say that. Uh, now, I understand, too, that you now celebrate two birthdays, your original mm-hmm. birthday and then May 14th, so the day you died and came back to life. Yes, my wife. My wife has made that a tradition now, and and you know the ironic part again, which is why I I uh, I think that that we were supposed to write this book to help as many people as we could, was that there's 365 days in a year, and the good Lord chose my wife's birthday for me to die on, and be dead for 43 minutes on her 43rd birthday, and then come he back. Just didn't so, want to give me a Denny, that's all. He just didn't want to buy me a gift. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. That's all. You know, I mean, I, he just wanted know, to get out of getting me a gift. I'm still waiting for one. Still, you know, I say to her, I say to next year, I'm like, I don't know how I can top the gift of Don even coming back. I mean, I don't know what I'm supposed to do this year. You know? I said for every for every day in intensive care, I should have gotten a diamond. What I went through. <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, so so we do have cake for for Cheryl on her birthday, and is always on the bottom of the cake. It's Rob. Rob's gonna be five this year. Yeah. So, so this year I'm gonna be five. Yeah. Yes. What a way to keep hey, young. Some huh? people will do anything to hang on to their youth. You know, yeah. I mean, for real, Morgan. You, you know um, that it's it's. I uh, have anything myself. <laughs> Before we bring Morgan in, I got one uh, final question for uh, Cheryl and for you and Rob both. Uh, either one of you can answer to both of you. Why did you decide that this was the right time to write your story? Okay. Um, I guess I'll answer that one. Um, well, we've been wanting to, you know, tell our story for a long time now, but, uh, we, you know, I never, I never knew if I was strong enough, to be honest with you, Denny, and... Um, you know, so we've, like I said, we've always, I've always wanted to, and um, you know, the story that has been out about me for all these years back when I was a kid uh, was never the right story. Um, they had written a book and a movie 
um, about our story that uh, had didn't have any of our input. And so we've always, you know, wanted to get our story out there, but I never knew if I was strong enough to bring everything back up. And um, I didn't know that I was strong enough until, unfortunately, um, I didn't have a choice that for the first time I had to speak up for myself, and that was uh, when Rob had his heart attack and uh, he was unable to be there um, and speak up uh, with me and uh, for me. And, um, you know, at that point, um, you know, when I had to ask the doctor for more time and beg him to, uh, you know, give him 10 more minutes, um, you know, I, it was for the first time in my life where, you know, he wasn't by my, you know, by my side to take over and protect me like he has, you know, since he's known me for, you know, since I've been 15. So I really had to make a lot of, you know, decisions without him, even though I wanted to wake him up and say, come on, help me with this decision, you know, and then you can go back to sleep. That wasn't an option, or when I waited for him to like run through the emergency doors and save me like he has done my whole life he was he wasn't able to do that, so I had to you know stand up for myself and and stand up for him and make decisions and you know life threatening decisions and fire doctors and hire other ones and make decisions and after after thank God he pulled through, and we were given a second chance to to you know to tell our story because, you know, my whole life he saved me and then I was lucky enough to save him that, you know, together, you know, it was a full circle that now we were able to save each other and, and, and write the book and write it together and lucky enough to find Morgan and have Morgan tell our story accurately and uh, and so the three of us could tell the story and get it out there and hopefully, you know, help other people uh, you know, know that they're not alone and uh, get our story out there correctly and that, you know, incest doesn't have to define you and that, uh, you know, that all these years that I I was I was probably strong enough, but I didn't know it until I had to know it and, um, and, and uh, you know, that, that um, that's what really made us decide that uh, it was time to... Uh, you know, get the get the true story out there and let people know that this this is this is the story of our lives and not the other story. And um, that um, you know, just because something bad happened to you in your life, it doesn't mean that uh, you're you're damaged goods. And that, um, like I said, it doesn't have to define you. And you could, you know, raise good kids and be a good person and and live a good life. And um, and that's basically why we wrote the book, to make it an inspirational book, you know, and let people know that there there is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Cheryl, I must say that, uh, you know, the, the, the circumstances that you found yourself in both uh, when you were 16 and also with, uh, with Rob's medical problem, uh, you did what had to be done, and uh, I certainly... Uh, respect you for that. You're quite a lady. Yes, Thank she you. always does. Thank you very much. She always does. Welcome. Now, uh, let's talk to my old friend and co-author Morgan St. James. <laughs> Morgan, uh, uh, before I start with a question for you, uh, I understand regarding the book that there have been some developments that just uh, a People magazine article has just come out, and also there's been uh, uh, a TV uh, 
episode? Yeah, well, actually, April 14th issue of People Magazine has a story entitled The Cheerleader and the Hitman, and it is an interview with Cheryl and some input with Rob. And i got to tell you, Denny, it was almost like having a baby. I mean, it took nine months from the time the project was green-lighted until we actually held the magazine in our hands. And the story in People pretty much tells about the past. It doesn't go into what happened afterwards very much. And, you know, some of the questions you've asked today are things that a lot of people haven't heard. And also, Discovery ID Channel, um, Lee Beckett, the producer, became a very strong ally of ours and of Cheryl and Rob's. And they are actually not in one episode, but in two episodes of the Eyewitness series, the debut of that new series and the finale. And in the finale, it is both Rob and Cheryl. And we owe a lot of thanks to Lee for as much as she has done for us. And, of course, since the People article, magaz- People Magazine article came out, there's been a lot of other interest, and we're sort of sorting through all of the requests now. And we're happy to be on your show as one of the first that we're talking to after all the publicity came out. <laughs> uh, well, that's great news to get that kind of uh, interest from the uh, from the media. Uh, question, Morgan, is how did you become first become acquainted with Cheryl and Rob, and what was there about their story when you heard it that convinced you you wanted to be involved with the project? Well, you're being a little coy there, Denny, because you're the one that introduced me to Cheryl and Rob. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember, um, but I I didn't want to insert myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just inserted you. Put honorable tab A into slot B. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, Cheryl and Rob had contacted a local editor in their area, jo- Joanne D. Simone, and Joanne felt there was something worthwhile in the project, and she contacted you because she knew you. Well, at the time, as I recall, you were tied up with several projects and weren't able to take it on. And since we had written a book with an abuse victim before, La Bella Mafia, and we worked very well together to keep Bella Capo's voice and tell her story, uh, you asked me if I would be interested in working with Cheryl and Rob if they were okay with it. And you told me a little bit about about the story. And the interesting thing that's happened with me, I mean, we've worked with a couple of other people, too, where the project did not wind up getting published under our names. And um, the interesting thing was I have felt such an affinity for women who have gone through this uh, horrendous experience that I almost Morgan, felt like it was me, my you're, calling. You're, I'm, uh, you're seen to be cutting out. Is anybody else? Oh, oh goodness. Am I, am I back in again? I can hear you better. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I almost felt like I needed to help these people tell their story and to make sure that it stayed in their voice, not the voice of somebody who was helping them write it. And um, so the more I knew about their story, the more convinced I was that I wanted to work with it. Are you there? Yes. And I was... uh, (laughs) Did I shock you? (laughs) 
Yes. And, Knocked you off your you know, feet, Denny Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, uh, Cheryl and Rob's story is very well documented. Uh, and as an author, how much easier was it to write a, this book with the documentation compared to other projects you've been involved with that, uh, that may not have had the, uh, the backup that this story has? Well, I would say that this was up at the upper end of being easier from a technical aspect because Cheryl had journaled for quite a few years while all these things were happening. And so we had great points of reference on everything. And the real challenge, actually there were two challenges with this book. The first challenge was to get everything into a chronological order where we didn't have to have too many flashbacks because flashbacks can take the reader out of the story, but yet in some instances it was really necessary for it to be a flashback. And the other thing was integrating two genres, which was the true crime and then the story about Rob's death. And that was rather difficult, and we worked together to integrate it so that we could tie the incidents together and show that it was the progression that Cheryl went through that gave her the strength to deal with this new slam that came at them in in their lives. And um, as far as working as a team, these are some of the most amazing people I've ever met. I mean, I feel like they're my kids. Unfortunately, I'm old enough for them to be my kids. But... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm okay. I admit it. I can't white hide the white hair. Uh, well, I could, but I don't. And um, it, it, you know, as the story unfolded, we got into more and more things—things things that weren't in the journal, things that really needed to be brought forward in order to give you a sense of the awful things that this couple endured, and yet after 30 years, they're as much in love with each other as they were when they met. Could have broken several couples apart. I mean, this is one of the amazing parts of the story that I don't know how many people realize what they endured together. Thank you, Morgan. My pleasure. My pleasure. And, you need acknowledgement, both of and you. We also, and we also do feel that you're part of our family now as well. Yeah. You know, after okay, going kids. through this that we went through. <laughs> well, you know, isn't it interesting that my own daughter and Cheryl were both born in the same year in the month of May? Right, yeah. It is. It is. It, it, there's so many, uh, so many things like that in the story that it's, uh, it's really crazy. Yeah, I mean, you two girls are only two, mo- uh, two weeks apart. Hmm. What a coincidence, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if you know, Denny, but the other coincidence is, I mean, I think that I was meant to work with these people because Um, this is the one instance, and then when you and I worked on Bella Capo's book, she and my daughter were both born on May 31st. Yeah, Somebody up there right. is telling me something. <laughs> you have Listen, a lot of kids. Um, That's what it's telling you. <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're starting to get a little short on time. I want to make sure okay. before we uh, run out that uh, 
Morgan, what uh, what formats is the book available in, and where can it be purchased? Okay, the book is available in paperback and in all forms of digital, and of course it can be found on Amazon. Uh, it's on Barnes and Noble, it's on Kobo, it's on Scribd, it's on Apple, uh, it's on various places. And if people go to our website, which is www, and then the title of the book, incestmurderandamiracle.com, there are links to all the different sites that are the most likely uh, places to purchase the book. However, it is available at almost every online bookseller, and you can go into any Barnes & Noble or independent bookstore, give the title, and say that you'd like to order it. Okay, great. Uh, Delilah, do you have any uh, questions uh, remaining before we wrap up? Well, I just think, like Morgan said, this is kind of a divine intervention story as it all unfolds. <laughs> um, you know, the the miracles that both of these people have survived and coming together with you to, to tell the story. And um, I can't wait to get a copy of the book. <laughs> I uh, guarantee you, you you'll be pa- you'll be thank turning you. the pages, Delilah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we're okay. hoping a lot of people read it just because um, we really feel like it's inspiring and it gives all, all kinds of people all kinds of people hope. Even even Rob Zan, who's unfortunately battling cancer. You know, you don't have to be an incest survivor or any kind of abuse victim. It just gave her, she said, I feel like if you guys went through everything reading this book, everything that you went through in this book, I feel like I could fight cancer. That's how inspired she felt after reading it because it just, even if it gave her one more day of hope that after everything she read in the book that we went through, you know, so if it just gives somebody a smile on their face and and feels inspired for one day, that's that's all we want. We just want people to feel like, you know what, if we could do it, they could do it too. And that's just that's just what we want them to to put a smile on their face. That's all. Okay, do we have time for one more thing? A quick one? Uh something that we haven't mentioned is that Rob is an oncology nurse and three mu- three years after he died and there is evidence of the fact that he was dead for 43 minutes. He was named Nurse of the Year New York 2015. Now, isn't that something? Yes. That's amazing. He's always, he's, he's always been a, a, a caretaker, always, always for the underdog, always taking care of people. You know, he is just, he's amazing. All his patients love him, and, uh, yeah, he's just always, always taking care of, always the underdog, including his wife, so... <laughs> well, you're yeah, going to be yeah. the Uber dog now. <laughs> you know, for yeah. real. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to to close it out here. Uh, Cheryl, Rob, and Morgan, thank you so much for being here and sharing a, what's a truly fascinating story. And um, I wish you all the success in the world with that book. And thank, thank you, you so much. Our listeners. Thank you for giving Until us a platform. Time, we appreciate safe. it. Thank you. Thank you for telling us. Well, story. thank you thank so you. much for having us on your show, Denny. You're welcome. Okay. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Morgan, you there?
okay, Kevin, for the grand prize of $1 million. What color is the White House? Um, I know this, I know this, I know this. Um, five seconds. Oh, switching to Geico could save you a bunch of money on car insurance? Okay. Judges? That's true, Kevin. Bill and Owen, congratulations. You're a winner. Woo! Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.